probably wondering what we're going to say in light of such a chapter as this. And hopefully we'll be able to get some observations and helps to us as we look to it. I'm going to first read this chapter and, uh, and then give introduction and then some applications or what this could mean for us or should mean for us today. Joshua chapter 12. Now these are the kings of the land which the children of Israel smote and possessed their land on the other side Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon unto Mount Hermon and all the plain on the east. Shine king of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled from Aurora which is upon the bank of the river Arnon and from the middle of the river and from half Gilead even unto the river Jabbok which is the border of the children of Ammon. And from the plain to the sea of Teneroth on the east, and unto the sea of the plain, even the salt sea on the east, the way to Bethjeshemoth, and from the south under Ashdoth Pisgah. And the coast of Og, king of Bashan, which was of the remnant of the giants that dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Edriah, and reigned in Mount Hermon, and in Salca, and in all Bashan, unto the border of the uh, Geshurites, Gesherites, excuse me. No, it's Gesherites, and the Maccathites, and half Gilead, the border of Shion, king of Heshbon. Them did Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel smite, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it for possession unto the Reubenites, and the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel smote on this side, Jordan, on the west, from Bel. Baalgad in the valley of Lebanon, even unto the Mount Halak, which goeth up to Seir, which Joshua gave unto the tribes of Israel for a possession according to their divisions. And the mountains, and in the valleys, and in the plains, and in the springs, and in the wilderness, and in the south country, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Deber, one. The king of Gedor, one. The king of Horma, one. The king of Eret, one. And the king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of uh, Machilada, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapula, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek one, the king of Lashon one, the king of Maidan one, the king of Hazer one, the king of Shemron Mion one, the king of Akshaf one, the king of Teanak one, the king of Megiddo one, the king of Kedish one, the king of Jachnaim of Carmel one, the king of Dar and the coast of Dar one, the king of the nations of Gilad one, or Gilgal one, the king of Tezra one, all the kings, thirty and one. Now, we've seen in our studies upon this book, the labors of Joshua and the children of Israel as they have entered into the land of Canaan, that is, the land of promise. We have recorded for us in these by the author the victories of Israel under Joshua. We've also, though, seen a very sad thing take place. We've seen the sin of a man and what that particular sin did to him, what it did to his family, 
and also what it did to his nation. But in the main, we have seen Israel's victories over their enemies and the enemies of God. They have triumphed, just as God has said they would. And one of the outstanding things we can see all this, of course, is in this history and in this narrative here in the book of Joshua, is that God was with Joshua. And that in itself, of course, is a very important blessing and a very important privilege. Secondly, though, we see that as we examine that important point, or this important point, we see that it stems from the fulfillment of, Excuse me, of Joshua's, or excuse me, that for, from God's promise to Joshua. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 9. If we were going to sum it up, it would be this aspect as far as what's been taking place down through the months that uh, has been going on at this particular junction in Israel's history, and especially in, re, in, re, uh, in retrospect to Joshua himself. Look in verse 9 of chapter 1. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither thou, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Here is the ground on which Joshua decides and does and commits himself unto the Lord to go in and to take the land of Canaan. So it is the promise of God revealed here that he would never forsake Joshua. Also connected with this is that if, uh, if they, that is Joshua and the children of Israel, would obey, God then would rid them of their enemies. They had to be obedient. They couldn't lay that aside. They just couldn't go in and sit in their easy chair and sit back or even be disobedient. They learned the lesson of being disobedient, didn't they? With they are. So, they could not just go in and be passive about this. They had to believe the promise of God and then they had to go on and to do what they were committed unto to do. And we see that, save from a passage that was found in chapter 11 and verse 22, God did do that. Look in verse 22 of chapter 11. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. I don't know why. But I know that verse is there, so I have to grapple with it. But in all other aspects, we do see that God had fulfilled the promises unto Joshua and his people. Now, our present chapter is a summary of those victories, a very short summary. We hardly see anything in regards to what has taken place, just the fact that the certain kings had been destroyed. And even from the first part of this chapter, we see how that God was with Moses. So he calls their minds back to what had taken place years before under the leadership of Moses. And so this present chapter then gives us a summary of all of this. And this chapter is sandwiched between what God has done, as we see the first 11 chapters, and with what is going to be done beginning in chapter 13, and in particular the distribution of the land among the tribes of Israel. Now, you may wonder, why does such a chapter as this exist? Why is it here? And, of course, you know, there are several chapters like this in the Word of God, isn't there? Just a whole list of things, whether it be these particular things, these kings, or we've been reading in numbers, you see lists of numbers, lists of tribes. Those all seem kind of, well, why are they there for? They, they make good reading because I can get through them fairly fast if I can stay awake type of an attitude that we may have. But, you know, they're there. 
and we do have to grapple with them. And again, we may wonder why they are there. And even if we could conclude that they were necessary for those who of that time, who of course would be reading them, we would surely wonder, well, what good would they do us in the year 2008? And so as we come to these things, we need to think about this. Why is this here? Or what is it trying to show me? These, these lists of historical facts, historical kings, whether they can be proved or not by some kind of evidence, is, is, doesn't matter. The point of the matter is it's here in God's Word. And if all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and righteousness, so are these. So what do we do with these kinds of things? Well, first of all, we need to realize here that this chapter is divided by our translators into four paragraphs. If you noticed the paragraphs there, the little, by the way, a paragraph marking is, notice verse 4. It looks like a, a P that's facing the other way. That's a paragraph marking. Just as you think of paragraphs in your English grammar today and English language, this is what these are. Uh, I'm not going to try to defend them one way or the other. I'm just telling you they're there. I do not have a problem with them at all. I realize they run out by the time you get to 1 Corinthians, I believe. Somewhere in the New Testament you don't find any more paragraph markings. But we do find them in the main parts of, our, of the Scripture as far as the authorized version is concerned. So there are four paragraphs found in this chapter. And each paragraph gives something of a description of what has taken place. Whether it deals with Moses, whether it deals with Joshua, whether it deals with the kings that have been taken and destroyed by the Israelites. So this is up to this point, this is the narrative that is given unto us here. True, there were others, other kings that they will have to destroy, and there will be other portions of land that has yet to be conquered. We see this, for instance, in the next chapter, verse 2. This is the land that remained, yet remaineth all the borders of the Philistines and all Gershari. So there is some more work that they will have to do. But at this point, he stops in his narrative and begins to give these lists for us to pay attention to. Now, it's true, if you have a good Bible map, uh, some of this stuff will be more visible to you as you read it. You can flip back or flip over to it, and you can see some of the land, some of the uh, territories or provinces here or pieces of land anyway, that is spoken of there at this point. But, in all of this though, what are the lessons that can be learned from this? What are the lessons from chapter 12 that God would have us to learn? There really are lessons here. You may not think so, but there really are. The first one is this, and there are several, but I'm going to give a few here this morning. I want you to note all the kings that are listed. According to verse 24, 31 kings in all. 31 kings. You say, well, that sounds like a lot of kings. And yes, it is. That's a lot of kings dwelling in this land. And if you were to examine that map I was telling you might want to go to, you would see that the land area over there is not very large. Once you cross the Jordan River, and you, you'll go about 50 miles, and you'll hit the Mediterranean Sea. If you start at the top, so to speak and you go your way down, you will end up about 150 miles. So it's a very small plot of land that's still causing a lot of trouble, isn't it? 
But think of this. 31 kings. 31 provinces. 31 countries. In a very small area. What does that tell us? How much strife, how much divisions, wars must have existed in that small section of the world. 31 kings. And the only time they got together was that they could defeat Israel. 31 kings and a small landmass. The strife, the hatred, the desires, the greed. That's what divided all of these folks. They didn't want to be ruled under one individual king because they each had their differences. There were civil wars. There were border feuds. All of this encompassed these people. I want us to see what kind of what strife and division may bring us. What pride brings among us or can bring us. The Scripture teaches us that we are to be at peace among ourselves. Is this the kind of a church you would want? 31 provinces? 31 kings because there are 31 divisions? Schisms? Well, that's what happens when everybody wants their way. So one of the lessons we can see here is that what... Sin, the sin of division, the sin of schism, the sin of pride can bring to God's people. Paul over and over again in his epistles talks about being at peace one with another. He talks about in his epistles, exhorts us, commands us, pleads with us, beseeches us to be at one among ourselves. He denotes us that the church is a body. Now that we ought to function as a body, the hand doesn't go one way and the head the other, does it? We're together. He's tempered the body together, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And a lot of times, brethren, we have to put our petty arguments aside. We have to put our desires aside for the one main thing. And it's amazing that we're still together. Because I know we all have our differences But are we humble enough to treat others better than ourselves? You know, there would have not been 31 kings if they'd have thought that way. The second thing we can learn from this is God's faithfulness in Israel's uh, defeat of those kings. God told them He would help them. And He did. He didn't let them down, did He? He didn't forsake them. He was with them. Now think about this. 31 kings ganging up on a small people. And yet God preserved them. Why was, or why were the, why was the army of Israel, get my verbs right, why was the army of Israel successful? Was it because Joshua was a good commander? We can say under God, yes. Was it because they were fighting for a land that had been promised to them years and years and years ago? Yeah, we can say that under God. We can also say that 
perhaps the 31 kings weren't great battlers after all. And we might be able to say that under God. But the real reason as to why they were so successful as armies as they marched in is very simply put, it was God. God was the reason. God was good to them. He was for His people and He was against their adversaries. It was because, as Joshua found out that day when he was standing on holy ground, that it was because of the captain of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why they were successful. Because God's promises are true. He was with them. That's a 31 against 1. We would think that's not very good odds. But that one wasn't Israel. It was God. And so the odds then were on God's side, weren't they? And brethren, in our trials and our battles and our fights against sin and the world and the devil and our own hearts, the remaining corruptions that are certainly there, it's not just us who fights. Now, it's true. We do the striving. God didn't come down necessarily with a sword in His hand and begin to wipe out 31 kings. He used the people of God. But nonetheless, it's God who did it. And we have to have the same faith. We have to have the same battle plan that we see here with Israel and with Joshua if we expect to defeat our enemies. And believe you me, they're there, aren't they? You face them every day. I face them every day. The third and the last thing here, and we'll probably spend a little bit of time on this, This is a show, a demonstration, um, a visible demonstration in written form of God's goodness. That's related definitely to what I just said in number two, but I want to look at it from another perspective here. Israel, when they read this, they could and should have been thankful to God. After this was penned and it got into the Jewish canon in some way, some manner, I'm not even going to get into that, but they could open or undo the scroll and they could come to Joshua chapter 12 and that scroll and they could read this. And then they would think, look how God fought for my fathers and forefathers. Look how God has been with Israel. He's been good to them. How do I know that? Because I can see that He destroyed the king of Jerusalem. He destroyed the king of Jarmuth. He could destroy the king of Eglon and so forth. They could see that. And it's not just, Lord, thank you that you are our God and you destroyed some enemies. That's kind of how we pray sometimes. But notice, they could take this list and they could be particular to God, couldn't they? That's why these lists are here. It's to show not just the general mercies and the general goodness of God. They can show us, even down to one single king, the particular goodness of God. God was good because He destroyed by the king of Jerusalem. They could pray that. They could be thankful for that individual, particular point of their history. 
If you notice here, this is really a list, isn't it? And I know people today don't like lists that's in the Bible. That just doesn't sound Christian. It, it doesn't give me freedom. But brethren, I think lists are very important. I couldn't. Sh- I do the shopping, and my shopping day is Thursday. And Miss Langley will make me my shopping list, and I'll add what I want. The children get their cereals in that they want, and I trot off to the store. And I take that list, and I go through there, and I see exactly what it is I need to pick up. I see the particulars of it. And so lists to me, just in the physical things, are very important. They contain things, you see, that I will not forget. They can give me two items, and I get to the store, and I stand there thinking, what were those two items I was supposed to get? But if I write those things down on my list, I don't forget. Now, it's true. There are some things I do come home and say, oh, I didn't get that was on the list. I forgot it. But in the main, I get the stuff on the list. Here here is why those lists are there. So we will not forget. That's why this passage is here. So Israel of that day wouldn't forget who they destroyed. It is a chronological, or it's a list for them that they could forever take up and look at. Even if they knew this, and I think they did, obviously, and whenever this was penned, and maybe they had pieces of it at that point, when they began to distribute the land and keep going, they could look back and they say, well, look, here are the kings we have destroyed. Because we know that God has been good with to us. You see, these items on this list, they can be seen, they can be examined, and they can be remembered. And when they got on their knees and they prayed, it, couldn't, it wouldn't have to be just, thank you, Lord, for your mercies. Lord, thank you for destroying the king of Aphek. Thank you for overruling in the life of the king of Kedesh. That's why they're there. That's why they're helpful to us. And how easy though we are to forget that. Read over it quickly. And not try to bring up some of the things that's there. You know, what does this say for us in particular? We know that God is a particular God. You say, well, just Lord, defeat my sins. We can even go to Him and tell Him those individual sins. Make a list if you have to. And say, I covet. Lord, help me with that sin. Lord, I have a roving eye. Help me with that roving eye. Lord, I gossip. Please help me to tame that tongue. Individual, particular sins, you see. That's what this list tells us. That's what this list shows us. That He's a God, not only of the general view of things, but He's a God of the particulars. And we know that, do we not? Not a hair it can fall from your head without Him knowing it. A sparrow, which is one of the more populous birds you can see. Not one falls without the Father. He's a particular God. And as the Puritans said, He's a precise God. That's why there are lists. He wants us to remember these things. 
Even in the New Testament, we see lists. And you hear that. Well, Christianity isn't a bunch of do's and don'ts. I don't know what Christianity they think that they have. But mine does. Bible does. Go to Colossians 3. You'll see the do's and the don'ts laid out. Why are they laid out? Because we'll forget. There are particulars. Maybe you need to make it a positive list. Lord, help me to do this. Help me to praise you more. Help me to remember to pray more. Help me to pray for the folks I need to pray for. You know, we send out a prayer list. We hand it out supposedly once a month. Why? Because we want you to remember, don't we? Not forget. Here again, that's why they're there. The gracious promises of God in written form. The mighty works that He has done. And do we remind ourselves, and the Scripture teaches us in Psalms, because we see a lot of historical events in Psalms being mentioned, especially with the nation of Israel. And what's it for? To remind our children of these things. And to remind ourselves. Well, we'll stop there. And Lord willing, we'll pick up with chapter 13 next time. May God bless you. Got one right there. What we preach about? Yeah, no, that's there. All that stuff, same thing. You look a lot better. Huh? You look a lot better. Yeah, I feel good. It's not. I think I can get more rest right now. I have been anyway.